0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live.
1: Good morning. This morning, what I can say is that um, we have Al Kingsley this morning, which is just absolutely brilliant. And actually, we're gonna um, we're gonna have him on. He's spent the last thirty years in the edtech space, twenty of those as a school governor. I don't think i really need to introduce al kingsley do i because he's like absolutely um he's just phenomenal um but i'll give you a bit of a brief down he's the group ceo of net support learning he's an internationally acclaimed edtech vendor he's the chair of the hamptons academy trust and he's uh, worked with the K-West Academies Trust and Richard Barnard's Academy, all in the East of England. He's one of the regional school commissioners. He sits on the head teacher board of the East of England and East London, and is an independent chair of the country's SND board. Um, he's one of the Forbes Technology Council. He sits on the advisory council for the Federation for Education. I mean, I could go on and on and on realistically about, uh, you know, how being in there so uh to be honest it's just he's just so phenomenal so I, I, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to get to see if we've got Al on here and see if we can invite him over so with any luck, I can be like come on let's get in Al in so uh good morning Henry thank you nice to see you and let's see have we got Al? Al are you there?
2: I'm here. Hello. Good morning.
1: Good morning, Al. You know, I've had I've got my jingle on this morning. And my jingles. It worked when I set it up, and then it didn't come in. So now I'm kind of like slightly jingleless. It's like oh,
3: I,
2: I've got to apologise as well. I think I'm going to confuse everybody because I seem to have joined the radio show using my podcast logo. So um, I'm Al Brackets EdTech Share this morning. But I'm oh, not Confuse too many.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think it will do. But uh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, uh, Tom will probably be like, "Oh, we'll try and sort some jingleness out." So it maybe it, it's one of those starts. But I was so I was so busy sorting out my news this morning that I, I forgot to check my, my 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 intro jingle. But at least we know who you are because you've logged in and said you know exactly who you are. Otherwise, I would have been like, "Where, where exactly is it? Um Well, I'm quite,
2: I'm quite relieved, Kaz, because I think if we'd had a jingle, you and I might have ended up doing some embarrassing dancing. So embarrassing dancing you, to
1: bet, yeah, we're <laughs> terrible for that, really, aren't we? <laughs> it's like, if you missed, you missed us at bet this year, dancing away to now press play. Uh, you, you really should look that up. It's a sight to behold, to say the least. So. Ow, I, I said, it's like, you know, I really should have no introduction, but I've, I've kind of ran off a whole bunch of the things that you have. But what I wanted to talk to you about today is first, let's just have a bit of a chat. You did your book, The Secret Ed Tech. I mean, it was an absolute bestseller. I was part of, of some of the voices in it. And to be honest, it was just such a, a great kind of run into, and so thorough into how to use ed tech you know, in a school, like, productively and not where you sat there thinking to myself, is this working? Or how do, how do I put this together? And um, one of the things that you covered in it, I remember back in the day was you had a, a whole section on confidence. Let's talk a bit about this, because like, me and you are in this field, really. What do we think it's like now post pandemic? Do we think we've got the confidence to do kind of, you know, ed tech still? Do we think we've learned anything from it or are we are we still kind of in the dark on it
2: well i think we could probably answer with yes to all those points i think the reality check and thank you for your kind words on the book i think Mm. one of of the biggest drivers for for the success of the book was the fact that um it had so many different voices sharing ideas and insights and and we're always much stronger for that collaborative point of view Uh, in terms of confidence you know, one of the, the most important messages we, we always share, you know, and it's something I know that you and I are very aligned on, is, is that kind of mindset of no two schools are alike. And um, I, I sometimes worry because, in one sense, we've seen some amazing practice in some schools who've really gripped innovation and staff have run with it, uh, and it's had and it's had a really positive impact. And sometimes when we say impact, the natural persuasion is, what we mean, we can measure it in terms mm. of uh, progress eight attainment eight, whatever we want to measure it in. But actually, for lots of things, it's the impact is about time saving, better communication, staff well-being, um, parental engagement for our primary learners, getting families engaged more, using the technology more effectively. Yeah. But at the same time, there's plenty of schools that have really struggled, not because of a lack of will, but a lack of capacity. And they've been firefighting on so many different fronts. Uh, and so what I don't want is I don't want the EdTech narrative to be some form of race, where if you're not near the finish line, you somehow spectacularly failed. Yeah. Because really what we want to do you know, is, EdTech is just one of the tools in the toolbox. It's that background that will help and support amazing teaching and learning, but also the bigger picture of how we effectively run our schools. Certainly, when we think about maths, the technology mm. that can link all the schools together.
3: Mm. So
2: I think we've learned lots, but I would also think there's a risk that as we move back into perhaps the more traditional setting and hopefully without any more pandemic interactions with our schools yeah. we could equally run the risk of losing that muscle memory and those skills we've acquired and think well we don't need to worry about those now
3: mm-hmm. uh,
2: and that's the big one for me um, because the workplace has now defined what the skills are that our learners need when they leave school and therefore it's kind of incumbent upon us in schools to make sure that we weave those digital skills and technology into the things we do
1: hmm. i love the fact that you say you have the same view as me you know it's just an it's another tool in the toolbox isn't it you know Absolutely. and you can kind of like you know there's plenty of tools that we use in the toolbox in teaching to make you know a, a good you know education but you know edtechs just one of them And, uh, you know, one of the things I love that me and you definitely shared is that for you that it should be kind of down to the same sort of scrutiny, the same sort of um, planning as as any other, you know, tool that we've got in our toolbox. If you don't plan
2: with it, if you just chuck it into the mix, then the simple answer is it will be as effective as putting some paints in the middle of an English language conversation. It's not going Mm. to have an impact. Some of the best lessons I see have nothing to do with technology. They're just about actually engaging and inspiring learning in the classroom that dynamic between the teacher and students um, mm. but there are other examples where particularly when we look sometimes at our learners that are less engaged mm. we find that technology can be a real spark that catalyst to actually mm. get them learning without realizing they they're learning and facilitate you know the lesson plan as it was originally intended.
1: Mm. Uh, I think there's a um i think you're quite right i think there is kind of like a risk as we go forward that we're going to all want to go or put it all back in the box i don't want to look at it <laughs> and it's like you know I've, I've done that bit just put it away i've got to concentrate on other things and i think we would um lose a lot of those 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 key skills going forward if we did that because you're right you know the workplace has very much made it very clear that that's that's the route that they're, they're going down these are the skills that we need as we go forward in the future and and, you know, you don't really productively planning it, you know, and making sure that you've got a real accurate handle on, you know, what your capacity is, what your needs are, you know, what what where your aim is and what your vision is for your school with edtech tech is, is so critical. You know, there's so many that kind of like we will just buy it. And that's that's it. And that's yeah. what I loved about this, that your book. It just, it, it concentrated on the aims and the planning, you know, and I think how the route is. So-
2: Sorry, guys, I'm sorry, I think for a lot of people, the, 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 perhaps the perception was Al's written a book about EdTech. Well, naturally, he's going to tell you that, you know, the more you get, these are amazing tools. Go get them. Mm. Whereas actually, the point was much more about how do you effectively evaluate them? How do you measure impact? Don't, mm. don't do too much too quick. Don't set yourself up for failure. Uh, history tells us that often when there's big technology adoptions in schools, it's not the technology that fails, it's the fact there isn't the capacity for the C P D, the support, and nobody really understands why we're doing it or how we're gonna measure it.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, and so from that point of view, you know, good ed tech is a huge opportunity and potential to to take our education system forward. But it is just but one strand and that's where I think we're finally getting to the conversation. You know, the pandemic had one one good thing, I suppose, and there weren't clearly not many was that actually it did bring it up the priority list. We talked about it, and sometimes Mm. we talked about it and said it's not the right, this tool won't work for us. But sometimes we said, you know what, for the first time, we'll just take a risk, let's try it. Let's actually see whether that can help us innovate. And I think it empowered a lot of
3: Mm. staff in the
2: classroom and middle leaders to actually be allowed to have a, a greater voice on things that might impact for them and their students.
1: Mm -hmm. yeah so if you I mean if you haven't looked at it go go look at that but I know I've got a total spoiler because you've totally let me have it so tell me about your new book
2: well, obviously, the first thing was I couldn't call it my secret because I think my Adrian mole link had been done on the first book. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I think um, that's over with. And it's not a secret a, anymore as soon as we're announcing it. It's so. You've got
2: the scoop. You've got the scoop. Yeah. So, so, so listen, the, the fundamental for me was, you know, what did I try and do with my EdTech book was to try and make EdTech simple, plain English, so that everybody can be part of the conversation the way it should be. Mm. And the other area where I've spent the last couple of decades being involved heavily at different levels within schools has been around governance. Mm.
3: Um,
2: And in my role um, for the Regional Schools Commissioner, although it will change next month to the Regional Schools Directorate, um, a lot of the challenge about the growth of multi-academy trusts, the Mm. extra responsibility on them, is around governance. So I figured it was a good time to do the same process but write my school governance handbook and exactly the same, not to be a research-level Bible. In fact, in the book, I said, if you're looking for Jane Austen, it's, this is definitely much more Enid Blyton. But it's mm-hmm. about making governance ac- accessible for everybody. Mm. And actually, if you stop 10 people in the street and ask them, what does a school governor do, you will get very different perceptions. And I mm. think that's key because not only did the increased responsibility and accountability that we have on governors, trustees, and members within the structures of a multi-academy trust, particularly, Hmm. Um, we've got a new mandate, which is great, which is we want to recruit more governors based on their skills. We want Hmm. to get a broader skill set that can support alongside that challenge the the operation of our schools. And the last thing we want to do is recruit people who either aren't given the resources to be effective or become governors without realising what they're doing and leave again, which has Hmm. no benefit to anybody. So Hmm. I really thought, well, there's two parts here. One is if you're thinking about being a school governor, finding out exactly what's involved, where your responsibilities lie, and how you can understand the uh, the edu lingo, which yeah. is certainly a barrier for many. Yeah. And the second part was, if you're an existing governor, where's your checks and balance? How do you know if you're missing anything? And so mm-hmm. I use the other reference. You know, I've obviously um, gone very high brow on this. Uh, which is using donald rumsfeld um, as my quote which is it's not the known knowns or the known unknowns it's Uh, the unknown unknowns unknowns. and and that roughly translates to i don't care how willing able and enthusiastic you are we're all good at googling but you can't google what you don't know you need to google and so setting out these are your responsibilities and if you don't know this is how you go about finding more i felt was let me take all the really cool stuff and stick it in one place so that you've got a kind of a book you can carry around. Maybe I'm being over ambitious. And when people are talking in meetings about things, you can flip through it and it gives you some suggestive questions. Mm. It gives you explanations of what all those acronyms mean. Uh, And it also gives you a bit of a forward planner, whether you're planning in terms of the governance cycle or your financial cycle, if you're in a multi-cademy trust. And then, Mm. of course, there's different responsibilities on the trustees that are devolved rather than on the local governing body
1: so i i mean i i i've had a quick look and it's it's just um you know it's a really well-needed book and i mean you've been in governance for a very long time so let's just have a quick chat about this because i've got a few questions so you know the the nga governor's trust says that like we struggle to recruit in governors boards are getting older and one in 100 governors is under 30 oh and the governor vacancies are now at six-year highs you know Hmm. How do you feel like we can attract new governors and, uh, and younger governors or, or governors with from a wider range of of diversities? And, do, you know, do you think that's something that we need to be doing?
2: Absolutely. At the end of the day, your, your governing body should reflect the cohort of your school and your community. It, it's hmm. one of those kind of key checks and balances. I mean, if we wind the clock back and I, I have to choose my language so I don't offend anybody, if I wind the clock back 10 or 15 years ago, Largely mm-hmm. governing bodies were made up of retired people, best mm-hmm. intention, but had time on their hands to actually support. Yeah. And that was fantastic, and that voice still needs to be there. But we also need some current voices in terms of what's changing in the workplace, what mm-hmm. skills we can bring to the table. And so there's a, perhaps a perception that you come to be a governor, good old Alf, you've spent the last 20 years in governance, And all you do and all you do is give. You give up your time and your experience for free. And that's Mm. the end of the transaction. Mm. Whereas the reality is you also learn. You learn Mm. loads from education, from the way we do things, the way we support, the way we provide layers of challenge, robust challenge, the way we make sure we've got structures and policies for everything. And actually, if we start giving the narrative that you know all companies should be looking at their staff as they progress and one of the things they should be thinking of for their CPD is encouraging them To get involved in school governance, because not only will they share ideas from the workplace that's fresh and current, but they'll also Mm. learn skills they can come back in the way that they deal with their people, their teams, their structures. (laughs) Thinking much more of it being a two-way transaction, which it absolutely is.
1: I think that's Um, one of the big ones, isn't it? That people think it's kind of I've done school governors, I've done staff governors, and school governors, and I feel like people think it's a one-way thing where you just you know you give, 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 and that that's the whole. The whole setup, but actually, you get so much out of school governors. Um, yeah, you know, you really do. And and from a staff point of view, you know, I my school governors have been some of my absolute bedrocks in my school. They've been amazing. You know, so you know, they they're a really valued part of staff, aren't they?
2: I, I think so. I think it's also a bit of a two way street. Um, again, without trying to be controversial, in some schools, leadership absolutely apply a little bit of the imposter syndrome on governors you know yeah. we're a school we run education you can't possibly know yeah. a- and in some areas fair dues you know that's that's a fair, fair fair cop as they say but in other aspects i think people just need to set, sit, stop think for a second you're a school you join an academy you become part of a multi-academy trust
3: yeah. i
2: promise you the lion's share of that central multi-academy function operates to be stable and secure, and under the challenge of the Regional Schools Commissioner, is about governance, management structure, financial management and prudence, risk assessment. None of those skills come out of your teacher training. None of those skills come specifically from what you train for in your curriculum subject. They actually are identical skills that we see in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole point of this collaboration. There will be some governors who can provide loads of great insights and resource when it comes to project management, finance, risk, HR, all those kind of different aspects. But at the same time, they'll also learn heaps about how we actually manage a very complex ecosystem of staff and students and, and of course, understand about education and outcomes and doing the best. Um, So in that regard, I think we just need to kind of make it clear that it's an open door for anybody who's got both the will and the interest, but also those skills that will complement what we have. Mm. So I've seen some governing bodies that are fantastic, but they're all educators or former educators around the table. And that means there can be some superb conversations and challenge at standards or curriculum meetings. But we've got to think, depending on the nature of the school that we might need people around the table that can bring other skills to it. So finding a good blend, that that kind of skills assessment that you should be doing each year on your governing body to look for those gaps when you're recruiting
3: mm-hmm. is really
2: important and don't be surprised Those gaps are things that also will be reflected if you're a a MAT and you're looking to another school to join you as part of your application to the RSC. It will be just the same when your MAT is um, assessed by Ofsted, they will be looking at that skills matrix and the evidence that you've actually reflected on those aspects.
1: Mm -hmm. so i mean we've got loads of listeners so anybody who's got um questions for al on his new book um, matt uh, jessup tuning in from scotland welcome matt so um what uh, if you've got any questions for al or you want to tweet us out at at teacher uh, uh, uh teach talk radio um just let us know it's hashtag tt radio or um just drop in a question in here for us we're talking um al's new book on governance um so uh, have you called it what have you called it then have you called it it can't be your secret then can it because as we know it's not a secret really that you've been in governance I, for this long <laughs> so I, I decided to sacrifice
2: secret yeah, the yeah secret's gone and i replaced the word yeah. secret with school so it's my school governance handbook
1: yeah so um, if, you, if you, you, you might want to keep an eye on that one because I bet it'd be absolutely epic for those who are thinking about getting into school governance and having it. So have you got a few top tips for, you know, because it'll be mostly teachers listening to us, but about, you know, what, what are your top tips for teachers looking to improve um, governors and, and governance in their school?
2: Uh, there's, a, there's a few aspects. Obviously, I would strongly recommend you, you have a read yeah. by orange book. Um, the bigger picture, of course, is it's about collaborations. So the first thing is, you know, I'm really mindful. Lots of our leadership spend a lot of time producing reports for governing body meetings. And sometimes in governing boards that I've been asked to come and support, there's very little question or challenge back. Mm. So I think it flips to one is making reports accessible, being aware of the acronyms and actually signposting not just what the words or the the stats are, but why they're relevant or important.
3: Mm.
2: Uh, Equally, I think for governors listening, you know, and I shouldn't have to tell governors this, but, you know, there is an onus on us to make sure we read reports in advance, that we've got questions around it. The most constructive thing for school leaders who spent time preparing reports is that there is actually engagement and challenge, you know, 99% of the time, they'll have a really good reason and answer for those bits. But your role as a governor is either to validate we've thought it through, tick, 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 or possibly those one or 2% where you might think about other ways we could revisit and and question the topic.
3: Hmm. I
2: think also, um, the pandemic hasn't helped, you know, the best thing, particularly think about primary governors, is understanding the school context coming into school, seeing how the school runs, understanding in lessons, being aware of the challenge. One of the things I always um, try and encourage um, is for people to make sure in their schools they have a SOAP report. SOAP Mm. stands for school on a page. What's the key stats? What are you really good at? What are your areas for development? Where are the areas that have been highlighted if you've been inspected before? How are you doing when it comes to your different minority groups? Where are the gaps between your mainstream and your pupil premium students? Um, and really having a clear transition. Think of it like Ofsted ring this evening and you're coming in tomorrow morning for a governor's meeting. Mm. You've got to have a grip on what those key stats are. And actually what Ofsted want to hear is not you sit for an hour try and wind the clock down by telling them how amazing your school is they'll actually get more confidence from you being aware and evidencing that you're aware of where you're not amazing and what steps you put in place to mitigate and i think that's where it's really easy the natural persuasion is to produce stats that make us look great but actually as a governing body you want to look at the stats that aren't and how we're going to go about addressing them
1: I think that's a, that's a really critical one, I feel that you, you have the, the language that's accessible and you, you make sure those acronyms are dealt with. So I think some of the biggest problems that we see really in 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 when we we're talking to the you know the outside world, whether it be ed tech or whether it be governance, is you know this language translation barrier. I do a lot of that, as you know, and um, where you're trying to, you know, explain, you know, the complexities of education to people outside of it. You know, not everybody's going to be able to get all of those no. you know, detailed, you know, acronyms. And um, I've seen it in your 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 EdTech book. It was like a long list of exactly, you know, what the definitions were of everything. And and you, being you, able to get on that same page is so important.
2: Absolutely, and you won't be shocked to hear that the back section of my book is an EdU dictionary with yeah. about three hundred terms from both Curriculum, Finance and the broader are those key acronyms so that you've got that baseline of meanings.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's hard pushed, isn't it? I think sometimes we just don't understand as educators how often we use them. You know, until suddenly you're in a conversation with somebody who, who who has no idea what you're talking about. And then you're like, oh, yeah, you know, PP, it's fine. And you're like, what? What is that? <laughs> you're like, okay, like reading a the GP's there. prescription. <laughs> yeah, it is, isn't it? In kind of like the scrawly writing. And you kind of, Absolutely. you look at it and you think to yourself, oh, no, it'll be fine. They'll totally understand what I mean. And then you're like, oh, maybe they might not. So you, uh, as a matcher, and uh, mm. you've also been part of a, of an alternate provision at some point, haven't you? Um, I am currently.
2: I was I was asked about eighteen months ago to by the local authority to chair a, a pupil referral unit that was having yeah. challenges. Just had an Ofsted visit to help mm. um, find a new home and oversee changes and improvements. And so I'm still there um, and chair, chair of that separate um, alternative provision academy. Uh, and it's very much on a journey. Great timing mm. with the pandemic, but nonetheless, um, it's um, moving How forward. How are
1: you finding the differences and the experiences in
2: that? Um, I think it's very different. Actually, it's just quite a yin and a yang. I think if I kind of share in our local context, we've got the best part of 70 schools and mm. one alternative provision. Mm. And there's always going to be tensions between the, you know, the outflow of, of young people that are permanently excluded into an AP setting yeah Uh, and one one of the weaknesses you know i don't think i'm saying anything that's particularly um, surprising i hope to many um, is you know the fundamental of an ap should be about giving the right interventions and support for young people to get them back into mainstream rather than them spending their the rest of their educational journey at that setting in fact the best ap's and the journey we're trying to achieve is actually to prevent those permanent exclusions and have the outreach so that you can put the support of those that are most risk of exclusion. Mm. So it is quite different because those young people who are currently in our AP facility naturally have come from some really challenging um, environments at home. Mm. They're often heavily linked into gangs and other activities that don't necessarily help them make the right choices. Yeah. And in some cases, sadly in many cases, they really haven't had the right kind of support or that assessment earlier on in their educational journey to identify where their needs are.
3: Mm. And that's
2: another one that I know is close to your heart because we've talked yeah, about very it, much, uh, so. many times as well, but that early intervention, early assessment of the child's needs mm. potentially could mitigate so many of the things we find down the line.
1: Yeah, me and you have talked about this at length, you know, early intervention is just really critical for me. I mean, I think if we had more uh, assessment, more intervention, more, you know, they are talking recently about putting in, you know, dyslexia assessments a lot earlier. But Mm -hmm. I think realistically, we should have, uh, you know, assessments of children very early on to be able to get that support in place.
2: It's all about capacity, sadly, you know, and access Mm. to ed psyches and interventions is really, really challenging at the current time. But if we just take the the tech conversation back for a second, Mm. one thing we did find was with some of our AP cohort, where actually one of the biggest challenges was getting them into the school building every day. Mm. Uh, We've we've actually found the role of... um, delivering a blended offer and our remote learning tools has actually allowed us to get greater engagement. We've got mm. people who didn't want to come into school but are signing in online. Uh, mm. that, um, that initial gap where young people are permanently excluded and have that kind of day six window to be assigned into the uh, a pupil referral unit, alternative provision, we can make sure that's not wasted time and we can actually get interventions and support and just that face-to-face, that that, that Familiarity and nurture for our SEND, more vulnerable oh. students. So there's lots of areas where technology has actually helped facilitate some of the interventions that we need to be doing
1: quickly. Yeah, I think um, Matt Jessup's just pitched in saying he's using the Do It Profiler, a game changer for early interventions, but he's still in early use. I mean, we've got lots lots of tech coming out for that. Um, mm. And uh, when I look at it, I think, well, that's a great thing because we, we do need it. But I think that's the... I've said it before, I think I said it about ed tech or digital, you know, you can't teach it, you can't reach and it's so true whether the, you know, you're using ed tech or whether they're not coming in the building, you know, so you've kind of got to, you know, re-engage these young people in learning all over again. And I think, yeah. to be honest, there's something to be said at the moment with the pandemic, you know, the clout it's taken on, you know, young people and, and not attending. It's quite vast, you know, we've got to kind of like capture those young people and bring them back into the fold almost. And, you know, and that's going to be challenging, no matter what context. i find it quite
2: frustrating, really. There's there's been too much narrative on catch up on learning. Yeah, not enough narrative on catch up on social, emotional, mental health, getting people Mm -hmm. in the mindset to learn, recognising that, you know, it's not just in an AP setting in all our schools, we've got young people where actually we need to get them in the right headspace and have the right wraparound for them first before we're expecting them to be receptive to learning and some of the funding ring fencing hasn't necessarily helped in that in terms of how Mm. we can and can't use it Um, but I think again probably one of the biggest things I learned and it's something that I try to do because for me everything that I try and share is collaborative it's stuff that I've learned from others Mm. Uh, Is the same when it comes to an AP provision You're not an island, splendid isolation. You actually have to have a really close relationship with all the schools so that not only can you be aware of that support that might be needed to prevent exclusions, but also that you can make sure that young people that do come to the AP setting are there for the minimum amount of time. And when we're looking to get them back into mainstream, schools will trust that that child is ready for mainstream Mm. because they're they're coming with a package around it. And that collaboration and trust, I think, is key to making sure an AP provision is successful.
1: Yeah, I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that it's all about the kid, you know, at the end of the day, you know, this should Absolutely. be focused on the young person going forward. And I, I agree. I think we've not really looked at the mental health impact, the social well-being impact. We've just kind of gone, oh, quick, catch up, you know, come in, do English maths, you know, and actually, really, probably what we need is a much more realistic package because it, it did, it's it's took a, quite a knock on young people, this. Um, yes. Yes. I, I think
2: Mr Jessup has summarised my views quite quite. Yeah, quite
1: if you're rightly, looking in the, the notes, yeah, yeah, so it's <laughs> particularly controversial as usual. It's Matt all over uh, for you. Um, say,
2: it, say it as it is.
1: Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, I think one of the things that me and you have both, before we're, we're going to try and go to the news, is we've both done stuff with the Federation of Education, haven't we? We both did it on, um, both mm. on the diversity um, thread for uh, so the equality and diversity and inclusion thread for the recent 10-year report. And yes. I... How do you think it was, why do you think it was so important to have a long-term plan for education? I know why I was part of it um, and, and kind of like wanted to be part of a 10-year plan. I wondered why you thought this, a 10-year plan for, for, the, for the Federation for Educational Development was important
3: it's for
2: me it's fundamental i I co-chair two work streams so one the one that that you and i are heavily involved in around that diversity inclusion equity and the other one which is looking actually away from just england at Mm. high performing school systems and what do we mean about it that future so Mm. why do we need a 10-year plan well i guess i could simplify it which is we run schools largely when we think about government interventions Mm. based on short short short-term changes that impact the, the delivery because we're always having to change the goalposts. Mm. And fundamentally, most of the interventions in education are intended to be within a five year um, parliamentary cycle. In other words, we'll announce something and we want the results of it that we can ride on the coattails before there's a next general election.
3: Yeah. Well,
2: you can't, it, it's a bit like now. You know, if I give a school a million pounds because they're struggling on something, The reality is a one-off fee allows me to buy in resource, but I can't commit and staff for the long term because I don't know what my funding is going to be next year.
3: Mm. And it's
2: always short-term blocks of money with with caveats around it, rather than sustainable funding and a sustainable view on what we want to deliver for education. The reason why the work streams are really important is because There are so many strands to think about. Of course, we want to talk about what's the right curriculum and delivery. And again, I often talk heavily about having got the balance right between skills versus knowledge acquisition. Hmm. We want to be mindful of place-based and the interventions on a regional basis. We need to be absolutely mindful of actually the things we introduce in education. Are we making sure that not only for our student cohort, but our actual staff cohort and our schools, are inclusive that our teaching cohort reflects the young people that are coming into our schools set aspiration
3: mm-hmm. and
2: when we talk about anything we add and technology absolutely one we need to make sure that technology facilitates and it makes our learning more accessible to all
3: mm-hmm. not
2: extends the inequity by the haves and have-nots um, based on the choices we make and I think yeah. Equity is is at the heart of all the things that we do. So I really hope, you know, like all these things, a 10-year plan is something that ultimately will require somebody with a little bit more about them in government that will actually bring together cross-party views and say, you know, education shouldn't be a political point. It should Mm. be something that's a common. We set expectations. We give schools the stability to say we're not going to keep changing the goalposts. This is how we're going to fund you. This is what we expect from you. Now make start making long term planning decisions. And you know what? Long term planning is always cheaper than those of short interventions. The US has a, a system where um, if schools perform poorly on their um, national tables, mm. um, then then they'll get extra funding and they get extra funding to help them get out of a hole. And once they're out of a hole, the funding goes away again. And Mm. not surprisingly, you get this roller coaster shaped curve where schools struggle. They add money and capacity. And once they're up and working effectively, the money goes again.
3: Mm. And
2: you look back and you think, have you not figured it out yet? That instead of having all those lows, if you just kept a a consistent level of funding that was needed by the school, you could Mm. keep it at the top of the curve the whole time and money isn't everything you know the biggest thing for me is having to always constantly adapt to change the different way we're going to measure and score what we set as our priorities
1: yeah i always feel like that when you're looking at it and you kind of like not to intervene but when you when you kind of looking at schools themselves and how how they go about it and how, how we go about judgment it always feels like these goalposts are continuously moving and being juggled around a lot and the problem with that is then it gives you no baseline to ever you know, really monitor what's actually going on, you know, because there's no, there's no baseline data, is there really? It's like, just when you think you've kind of got it, something else has changed. So, you know, you, you end up with this problem where we can't really look at education as a whole. I mean, I know that's why it's important to me, because this changing of the, the, the goalpost does nobody any good in the long run.
2: The world is changing. You know, the education system, which works well in many regards, you know, has, has been founded over many decades, actually centuries, in terms mm. of that, that core, what we think are the skills that are transportable to the workplace. But, you know, life is changing. We, we've only got to look now and actually understand that, you know, for a starter, do we want to measure the success of a school based on how many of our children achieve a specific success in specific tests at the yeah. end of their learning journey? Or do we actually want to make sure that our curriculum is broad enough that there's something for everyone to excel at and acquire skills that will do them best in later life? Mm. So when we start looking at the government's aspirations, whether it's about, you know, eBAC um, versus what's real, you know, the government yeah. wants seventy five percent of students to access it. But you know, I have to be direct and say that's not for everybody. And most school leaders rightly say I'm not gonna put my children in and set them up for failure. Those mm. buckets are too narrow and, and if a child doesn't have good language skills and that's not their strength why should I put them in for something at the expense of something that they might well excel at mm. and and that's the challenge that the, the desire to measure tends to have the pressure of narrowing the curriculum offer well if we want inclusivity and accessibility for all the best way we make sure our learners achieve something have success and confidence moving into their adult lives mm is to make sure there's the breadth of resources and courses that align with them and never more important in an AP. Yeah. You know, that that's what we see in the alternative provision setting, which is actually, for some of our learners, their expectations are they'll have no piece of paper with no qualification at the end. And how shocking would that be? Whereas yeah. actually, we could, they could acquire loads of skills that are relevant, but perhaps not the ones that we always put in that default bucket of judgment.
1: Uh, it's always hard, isn't it though, you know, you get to the kind of bucket of judgment sort of system. Um, you know, when you look at it, it's like, well, what priorities, you know, who decides what priorities and which buckets, isn't it? You know, I mean, I'd have computing in a higher bucket, you know, uh, or, or, you know, or I'd have, you know, digital skills in a higher bucket, seeing as it's a, a big yeah. priority. But obviously it's not, it's in a much lower bucket. So, you know, we're seeing, you know. But you why know. do
2: we need buckets at all? Why, exactly. why do we recognise that, that the professionals that are in the school, running our schools, yeah. why don't we make sure that they make choices, think place-based with yeah. the courses and skills that are most relevant to their cohort? The yeah. assumption that the cohort will be the same everywhere in the country. I'm afraid is a a folly. And I see the comment about Estonia, the model for education Uh, and business. Well, look at what happened during the pandemic. It's 10 years ago that Estonia started embedding digital skills and more broader skills based into their education system. And absolutely, they mitigated a huge amount
1: of the disruption. Yeah, they did. They did. I mean, there's, there's lots of different ways of looking at this. But I think that long term plan, if you've not read the Federation for Education Development's report, it's out there, um, go and have a look at it. It's, it's a really critical kind of read for what we, th- I think, such an incredible broad range of teachers need to think needs to change. And that was what always struck me about that project. It was it, the, the views were so broad over such a long amount of time that it kind of really captures you know what what really needs to change as we go forward i think so i'm, I'm hoping that somebody's out there listening to this thinking you know what yeah. maybe i'll have a look at that um i'm going to go to the news app so are you ready for the experiment of caroline going to the news uh, once i do what i'll do is um uh, i'm going to come back to you afterwards so if not i'm going to come back to you in a second so let's give this a go because i know yeah, I think- let's go for it let's go for this you ready okay so let's try this now so i'm gonna i'm gonna try and see if this works Oh, oh, maybe, maybe not. No, you know what? I think my news this morning is kind of like you know having a bit of a moment, to be perfectly honest. So let's try. I'm going to try and add it again. And you know when you have that moment where it's like, does technology work for you? Not really. If not, if not,
2: <laughs> I've got it. I've got it covered. I shall read the headlines <laughs> off the website for you.
1: do you know what actually you could do you could try and read it for me but you know what actually normally we have like an emergency you ready for this oh you can sit in with me on it normally we have like an emergency kind of news actually that you can read so you know we have a kind of like emergency backup news for for what you should be able to to put together if, if you're really really struggling with it so I'm going to go and find it now and see whether I can actually do it we'll give it another bash before I, I commit to being like oh yeah I'm going to read this so let's just give it one more go uh, well for some reason today it's like I started with it and now it's like, you know what, Kaz? No, I'm not playing for you. I'm not doing any of this.
3: If it
2: helps Kaz, I can let everybody know that Lich Trust <laughs> is planning to rush through a national insurance cut.
1: China's being
2: irresponsible and there's a whale stuck in a river in France.
1: There's a whale stuck in a river in France? You are kidding me. Yes. Where is this it's whale? It's nourish
2: though and they're going to give it some vitamins. It's a beluga whale, 70 kilometres north of Paris. <laughs>
1: um, 70 kilometres north of Paris. a beluga And please a let whale. me
2: know if you'd like me to do the weather as well. I'm happy to do it. Sunshine and likely to be the same for the next couple of weeks. There mm. we go.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So wait there. We'll try and find, um, <laughs> find my actual like host news because to be honest i think it's 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 not here at all so i'm just going to kind of like see if i can find the the news to read so um see whether we've got anything that's that's on here because to be honest it's like as i said we normally have it but what i might do is is, see if we've got it and see whether we can kind of move towards talking about something else and then maybe maybe come back to my news when i kind of find it Um,
2: that's my edtech buddy have you considered turning it off and on again
1: no i've not considered turning it off and (laughs) on (laughs) again <laughs> do you know what like I could turn it. you know what actually that's totally no no don't do that you might never like, come back I may never come back it's like you know you turn it off you turn it on have you unplugged it have you have you checked that you've got the kind of sound up no I haven't you know what I mean it is literally one of them it's like do you know what I think the frustrating part about it is is that I added it this morning checked it all it all worked and then it went live and it's all not worked it's a proper typical ed tech thing that is though isn't it if anybody's ever had that moment where they've tried to get a classroom to work and then it's not worked for them then yeah yeah it's exactly like that and don't you think
2: in truth we could be serious about it for a second that's actually one of the main barriers why technology adoption fails teachers try something new in the classroom have challenges and then to, to use it a second time around you're almost nervous before you start yeah, and you know, that's that's the risk with technology, isn't it? It's building the confidence levels up.
1: Yeah, I think it is. I think it's also you know when we talk about you know ed tech itself, you always have that moment where I think you've got to be how cool are you when it goes wrong. You know, that's always the good one, isn't it? How cool can you be when it all goes (laughs) drastically wrong? Can you think on your feet for it? And honestly, I've got to admit, I think when I first started teaching, I'd be like slightly panicky, but now I'm just like, oh, no, I'm just going to be a bit kind of chilled um, and just kind of be like, yeah, well, it's, it's not quite worked out as much as I'd like to. But, you know, here we go. We're just, you know, going through the process, I think. I don't know about you, but i think it's, it's a deliberate so like,
2: example yeah sorry I was gonna say it's a deliberate example of growth mindset that's what we're doing we're just giving people uh, a good example how when things go wrong we don't take it as a failure we, we take it as we can learn from it we can adapt and we'll 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 just take it in our stride
1: <laughs> yeah exactly where do you take it in your stride for it so what i think what i'm going to do is I'll, I'll go back to the the news when i find it instead what i'm going to do is i'm going to um what i'm going to do is i'm going to move to a a few more things that we can talk about because me and you could talk all day
2: yeah we should talk about privacy shouldn't we
1: yes and i think that is the next thing i was going to ask you about so let's talk about privacy because this one's a a a really interesting one like how do you how do you feel about this like where do you feel about our, our where it's going and where we're up to with it because I do feel like we have got a kind of bigger sort of issue regarding data privacy yeah. in schools. It's like this it's like this monster that nobody's kind of willing to face and it's all sort of going a bit wrong with it or yep. it's going a bit right in places but it's just such a vast area that I feel like we're not really addressing very well um you know yeah, young people a complicated one, isn't it? give a, yeah i mean we we access our ed tech tools but they're private entities a lot of the time we're signing young people up for the you know the projects and platforms and we're not asking the questions about where the data goes you know we are you know parental and locus but you know by how much you know how much of the information can we approve to give away you know king kids approve it themselves i mean the, the whole area is just so vast i mean what do you think is the what do you think i know where i think it is but what do you think is the big the big bad in this one
2: there's a few sadly and i think sometimes when we talk about privacy um we, we often end up very much in a, a brexit type conversation with people sitting in one camp or the other, and of course that never really comes to a, a successful resolution so I think there's a number of strands we can think about. Often when there's challenges by parents about the privacy policies that a school has or what they're doing, um, sometimes it's about transparency. It's lack of understanding and knowledge as a school as a processor and why it needs to keep certain data and has data. Mm. And often transparency is the best way to mitigate. You know, I often see... Um, and and. I spent a long time working in data privacy and different aspects, I uh, acted as a DPO, and sometimes I'll have parents saying they don't want any of their child's data ever kept at the school. They send me the message via their Facebook feed without any concerns from that, of course, without understanding that actually the core level of information the school keeps is actually in order to keep a child safe. Who they are, who can and can't collect them from the school gate, any concerns we might have if are a looked after child, links with social care, there's lots of other bits of data that a school needs to keep in order to undertake its statutory obligations. Where it gets more muddy and it gets out in the press is as we move to our journey, like we are in business and in our personal lives, where we store our data in solutions that aren't physically on a hard disk in a locked room, Mm -hmm. we start to worry about where that data might go. And in that regard, I think there's two aspects. There's one there is, let's take an honest positive, shall we say, the positive is... Actually, there's, oh, the world is moving in the cloud, and there are plenty of ways of storing data in the cloud where the levels of data security can be at an extremely high level. In, case, in fact, in many cases, more safe than that mm-hmm. server that's being maintained in a primary school by someone who isn't a specialist IT person.
3: Yeah. But,
2: and there's a big but on this, which is we've also got to be mindful that data doesn't become a thing where we measure it in how much of it we've got. Firstly, we've got to make sure the data we capture is the data that we actually need. It serves a purpose. Um, And we've got to be mindful of those things, the things that we might wrap around the DPIA. So what data do we store? Where's it stored? Who has access to it? How long is it kept for? And based on those variables and what kind of data it is, we can form a risk assessment. What would happen if it was breached? What would happen if somebody else got access to it? Then in parallel to that, we've got what is now a very high profile strand which Mm. is what's the roles I'll flip to my vendor have in your system storing data about our children?
3: What do you do with
2: it? What are your moral obligations and your legal obligations? Mm. So the first thing for me, something I'm very much focused on, is making sure you have that transparency. If Mm. you head and I'll I'll happily share it here, if you head to our our cloud-based solution classroom.cloud, it's pretty easy URL to get to, you'll see at the bottom we have our data privacy data processing agreement all in plain English that tells you exactly what data we capture, how it's processed, who has access to it. We'll tell you what cookies we've got on our website, whether it's a Google Analytics or whatever's on the website. We're absolutely explicit in where the data is, how we handle it, and who has access to it. What we also are absolutely explicit in is we don't share it with anybody else. And where there's been problems is that there are some vendors, international vendors, who have recognised that that data has a potential value if shared, be it directly or anonymously, with other stakeholders,
3: mm. that
2: could shape give indicators of young people's interests and personal choices in the future, mm. and and that for me crosses a line where I think we can't hide behind complicated agreements that flash up on the screen, and the natural persuasion is people scroll to the very bottom and say okay, mm. um, and we actually have to recognise. Um, that in education, particularly with young people's data, and of course it shouldn't be the same for adults, I should stress, Mm. um, if you're an education vendor, you have a moral obligation that you should be absolutely clear and you should give a school when they sign up to your product transparency on whether the data leaves your facilities. And if it does, they should have an option to opt out and say, no, I'm not happy for that to happen. At the moment, some vendors are really, really poor in that transparency and Mm. that purpose. The vast majority are great and I think one of the challenges that always frustrates me is the few do harm to the confidence of the many mm. um, and so in a way it's really healthy Caroline, I am apologize I'm, I'm probably going on a bit, I'm really pleased that there's a lot of narrative around this at the moment because actually the only way we move the dial is to actually provide the challenge. Sometimes Correct. I think the challenge goes too far in the sense of you can't expect a school to operate effectively without keeping and storing student data but we can also find ways to say that actually there's some data you're collecting that you really don't need and you need to stop
1: yeah i mean i wrote that piece recently didn't i for rise you know the question what you kind did. of data you're using and how how it comes through and you obviously you know that data is a big one with me you know how we make the choices about what we collect and how we we store it how we use it how we assess it how we we go forward with our tech and and how we agree about what data should be out there or not um and you know and it, you know i remember complaining about this like five years ago and it wasn't really a thing. And I was like, well, hold up a second. Like, have we really thought this through? And it was like, just nobody knew what I meant. And it was like, obviously coming from open source, you know, background in tech, (sighs) I was very much like, well, this should be absolutely clear. Um, But, you know, when you look out there, it's still very patchy in places. And, you know, a lot of the time I think, it's, it's not really thought through for the simple reason when you, you know, you, if, it, if it's really clear what you're collecting and you're fine about it and you can have those discussions with your teachers and, and you can make that case to parents as well, then that's great. You know, if you've got tech, that's really clear, wonderful. But, you know, if you've not and you've not, then you really wanna think about that for the simple reason, you know, you forget, I say to my students all the time, the internet's forever you know it's a big giant billboard for all of eternity you know it's it's gonna that's gonna be there for a long time you know if you if you don't know where that data is going or what it's going to be used or how it could be um back propagated to then identify students you you do not know you don't know how that's gonna work so i think it's an
2: important one to put in we kind of make it clear as part of a strand in our digital strategy hmm. because uh, whilst this conversation is really important and really healthy and we can talk about our data protection and what data we keep and we can make decisions about products and make sure we check thoroughly where the data is stored and what controls they have in place
3: mm.
2: we at the same time don't want to lose sight of the fact that we keep data locally in our schools and just as much risk is actually about poor security cybersecurity security oh, yeah. of our resources internally and we, we can make a decision as a school or a trust to only use product x because it's the only one that we really really really, really trust. And the next week we can find that our machines have been hacked because of poor internal systems and we're locked yeah. out of everything and all the data's gone anyway mm. so this is a much more than getting focused on one strand to make sure that people actually stop and, and use that as i like to refer to that wider lens that actually mm. there's lots of strands that all feed into this and you can't consider them in isolation any more than we've got to be mindful of digital citizenship skills mm. actually developing the digital confidence of our learners so that they're able to keep them safe online, consider what they share online. Maybe we also wanna be focusing on their behavior online, um, how they communicate with others. That will tie in with some of the concerns about peer-to-peer bullying that we've seen recently online. And at the same time, we'll make them stop and challenge what data they share. And and again, it's not one, one strand fixes the issue. It's about the consolidation of these different areas together.
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i mean so you know if you if you're interested in that so some really good reports on things like digital defend me matt jessup's put up um talking about Mm. uh, you know biometrics you can see one from the children's commissioner and that was an incredible report called what do they know about me that's one of my favorites go and check that out i'm gonna i'm gonna attempt the news and then if not i'll i have found what you know i've found the news i can read so well done let's try this again let's see if we can and if not i'm gonna i'm gonna going to be like oh you know what i'm just going to read it no nothing today i think it's going to be are you ready for caroline's beautiful news (laughs) are you ready for the news right so okay i'm excited okay get get prepared because i am i am i'm totally going for this i'll go for it in my proper uh, hostess news voice anybody who's listening in you ready for this this is what caroline actually used to sound like when she worked With the Strap Group are a leading provider of specialist education and care. They need people like you to help them achieve even more. At Witherstaff, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to clear pro- career progression and rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. Witherstaff currently have some fantastic career opportunities available. To apply for, check out www.witherstappgroup.co.uk careers. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service provides secondary schools with an evidence-based curriculum at Key Stage 3, Key Stage 4 and connects it with the Resources Assessment, Next Steps and CPD powered by Oxford Smart Caboodle. What makes Oxford Smart different? For the first time, the curriculum is seamlessly connected to the Resources Assessment, Next Steps and CPD needed to deliver that curriculum. The curriculum coherence means all comp... Components work smoothly together, gathering data to give you the insights you need to plan, teach, assess, and monitor the progression of all your students effectively, as well as providing a personalized and adaptive learning pathway for all your students. Oxford Smart frees you up from time to inspire a love of learning in your students to spark awe and wonder in your classroom. Visit OUP at globaloup.co to find out more oh well done me <laughs> how did that sound did it sound like one of those women on the the tannoys again
2: i thought you were moira stewart for a second
1: oh, really probably did you you like, i sound totally non-northern and suddenly i sound like hey, hi welcome yeah you always have that kind of like squeakiness in the voice don't you i do a good uh, hostess when i need to Um, Actually, it's one of those kind of things that we don't talk about when you're kind of teaching like your your voice and your tonage, but they do teach you when you're in crude, they teach you exactly the tone and voice you need for various things. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And you know what, actually, if you've you've never had tone um, guidance, um really really a good one to go for if you've not thought of kind of getting tone guidance for a classroom or you know what kind of tones work for what it's a it's a classic one to to use and i actually think you get quite a lot out of it actually um manipulating the tone of your voice for it um so now i, I have done the brief intro news um so we've had a, a long talk if you've only just joined us um, me and Ella have been having a chat about um, the Secret EdTech Diary. Um, we had a chat about his new book, My Governance, is it not? My Governance? My
2: School Governance Handbook. My
1: School Governance Handbook, yes. My School Governance Handbook. Um, we've had a, a bit of a talk about data, about privacy, about APs. Um, so, uh, what I wanted to ask you now is me and you often meet up quite often at bets normally once a Mm. kind of year we catch up at bet educational conference so you know how did you find bet this year being post pandemic you know because we we go every year normally pre-fam you know before the pandemic and this new one was like the first one that we'd all done um and and obviously it was it was lovely to see everybody but how do you find um these kind of big events going to them do you think that the the beneficial i mean i love catching up with everybody um and obviously hanging around the 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 net support stage is like it becomes like the working hub to meet everybody at there it's like the, it's like the local place to hang out in not it um but how how did you find bet this year
2: um we really enjoyed Bet. i think like you've already alluded to um the most important thing was a was a chance face to face to catch up with familiar faces and friends now I suppose if you're attending vet as a vendor that's not really your primary ambition is to um just hang out with mates it is mine but i'm lucky that <laughs> I'm not too, but worry about the, the grown-up things um but increasingly you know Ten years ago, when we went to bet, the aspiration was how many people, how many leads did we achieve at the end of the show? In other words, you know, people that said, oh, I'm interested in buying your product. Well, education is much more nuanced now. There's very few people walking past saying, oh, that looks great. Here's my credit card or here's a PO from the school. I want to buy it today. It's much more now about building relationships. And somebody who's seen our solutions in the autumn, next year, the year after, when they're looking for a solution that matches, will remember us and maybe give us a call and have a chat. So it is about relationships. In that sense, it was definitely better than we anticipated. It wasn't Mm. as busy as as it had been pre-pandemic for obvious Mm. reasons. But I don't think that was lack of interest. I think that was lack of capacity in schools to let staff go and the risk of them catching something when they were at the show. Mm. Uh, What we have seen is we've had two years of lots of virtual events and virtual events have got a place. They've got a niche and they're absolutely a great way of accessing CPD. But they're no substitute for a face-to-face uh, and i think if you go with a mindset of learning and just absorbing what the current trends are listening mm. to some of the amazing presentations um, it really works well as a vendor i have to book a year in advance for last year's i've booked and paid for it two years in advance but you know we're already booked for next march mm. um and for me as you know on our stand we we make the stand much more space for meeting than we do space for selling and that's kind of important to me because that's the culture really that we're you know heavily invested in education rather than trying to deal into education
1: yeah i think that is um i think you do see it becomes very sometimes it can be very much a a big kind of like huge amounts of um sales pitch I, i did notice when i went there this time that it was yeah it was a it was a little quieter um for the simple reason i think i think you're right i think the capacity for school to let teachers go um wasn't 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 really there this year but i do think you're right it, it does have this um i don't know it's it's like, i think sometimes you know you all hang out and you all meet up at these things just to be able to meet up you know we don't yeah. we don't often have chance to no meet and chat you know, and it's and at least when we kind of you know whether it be bet or whether it be I'm heading to research Ed in September, um, you know, or any other event, you know, you meet yeah. up, you talk about education, you talk about the things that are going on, you look at some research, you know, you try and get the most out of it to take back to your school, um, you know, and I can think can I that throw that's accessibility kind of band- into the
2: question though?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. How accessible are they?
2: well for me one of the one of the things and i'll switch from my 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 Matt hat to my vendor hat for a second Go on. you know, i'm a huge supporter and fan of bet i love Bet. i like the trade shows in general in the chance to meet with people mm. one of my fears is we've got lots of new ed tech companies joining a thriving sector in the UK. One of the best ed tech sectors internationally as it happens, and we should be really proud of that. And mm. there's lots of educators that are taking a step away from the classroom either full-time, part-time and coming up with great solutions. Yeah. And my one fear with Bet is the accessibility to new startups because it's an expensive place to be.
3: It is. And,
2: and as, a, as a mature established vendor, I can assure you the price it costs me to attend Bet every year, Far exceeds what I get back from it in material sense, but it's not about that. But if I'm a new startup and my barrier to getting to actually talk and learn and share what I've done, and bearing in mind that co production is at the heart of great products, mm. um, I think there's more that BET can do and as a community we can do to make sure that the area and the accessibility of costs for startups, because I actually think it adds value for everybody having mm. that new cohort of solutions coming to the mix and joining the conversation. So that would be my one little caveat for a lot of the trade shows, and and maybe the message will get passed through. I've certainly shared it a few times.
1: I I think you should say that. I've I've shared a similar message. You know, my um, my worry about the 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 ability to participate. You know, um, two things, you know, one, the ability for a tech company or a new startup to be able to get into that, you know, and be able to showcase what they're doing. You know, I always worry about that for the simple Mm. reason. You're right. It is incredibly expensive to to showcase it there. And actually, you know, I don't think um, uh, I think we should have spaces for for young startups to be able to showcase, you know, what they're doing and and how they go. and also, you know, the accessibility in general, you know, this year it was interesting for me because obviously it's it's the first year because I got diagnosed with autism and ADHD just before we went, the year before we went into lockdown. And obviously it's been like three years since. This was the first year that I'd gone, you know, literally since diagnosis. So that's another one I, you know, and I raised it this year. And they were quite good, but it was like, you know, how do you make events like that accessible to people like me who, you know, do are going to find it really exhausting because you know i'm lucky because really i get to scoot around and see the people that i want to see and see the things that i want to see and then get out of the way (laughs) you know i'll kind of like i'll show up i'll see what i want i'll have a bit of a dance with you on now press play and then i'll go away (laughs) you know that's it that's that's i see what i want and then i'll leave And um, look, I was with the the GEC with Nicole's Pomford this year because normally I turn up with her, and you know, luckily enough, I can quietly find a little corner to kind of like escape to for a while. But obviously, there's there's that aspect as well. Yeah, you do need that. You need
2: that that show. We want people to come and with so much CPD on over the three days. We yeah. don't want people to feel that it needs to be a, a dash in and out. We want people to have spaces where there are places where you yeah. can sit and reflect, catch up. Um, I saw yeah. the comment from, from Matt. I absolutely support. One thing I'm doing this year, I've been asked to be the uh, speaker at each of the Visa learnout events around the UK. Yeah. But, I, but I definitely support You know, having a, a bet Manchester or a bet Newcastle would be, would be a great addition. I suspect the organisers would feel that that means there'd be less footfall to the London one and therefore they can derive less revenue from the vendors but actually if you, again if you think bigger picture of the sum of the two there might be the potential for it to be both more accessible for all of our educated mm. community as well as i mean i'm not a fan of not having the saturday um, mm. i really think bet valued the saturday not because mm. it was a high traffic high business day but actually often it was the dedicated staff across the country who couldn't get time out of school that gave up their own time to come down. And, th- and they're the people that you really do want to talk to. So mm. the compromise of a late night on a Thursday for me didn't work, because frankly, unless you're an educator within 20 miles, it didn't really make it any more accessible to you.
1: No, I, I, I liked the Saturdays because I felt like it did give everybody the opportunity to kind of attend it. You know, I've attended a few- Lots different. of young
2: people as well. Lots of kids yeah, came yeah. on a Saturday, which is great, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, um, uh, yeah i'm i'm all pro having a northern trade so i know um I know that they've got warning talks going on and i I honestly hope that we can get one down in the you know up in the north here and uh, yeah. you know have a have one that's here i don't think I, I'm with you I don't think that'd have much impact on whether people attended it or not attended it um you know the truth is is that it it may be widen the accessibility for people to Absolutely. attend it, and that's all that kind of matters on that front. Um, you know, I think, I think we, the importance of kind of events in person, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. when you kind of do it, um, and you know, you've got quite a, a large personal learning network. You know, I'm quite lucky like that as well. You know, what's and really, bet is part of that. It's you know a, a good ball, yeah. yeah. I mean, what do you think the benefits are to having it? Because I've been doing the rounds recently, haven't I? Because we have been doing. Educational workshops with Breacher, a space teaching teachers how to with create education teaching teachers how to use three D printing and Cat. And i found a lot of them, you know, going into schools on a regular basis. Um, you talk to people and they're like, "Oh no, we're not. You know, we don't use Twitter or we're not on such and such." you like, "Wow, there is a whole world out there." You know, what do you think the pluses are, and what do we think the negatives are about having a big, broad personal learning network? What do we think the pros are? Let's start with that. Pros are. I guess
2: the the biggest (laughs) pros, and it it comes down to your own mindset, whether you think you've got all the answers or you're actually willing to learn.
1: Mm. You know,
2: for me, the biggest point of a PLN is that actually I learn loads by seeing what people are sharing. Mm. And and then I try and add value by sharing my own ideas, resources. I I write lots of articles that feed into a PLN. But I think we're all at the point where, you know, I often talk about the – the contrast in education between business, you know, the business world, I always say we have a great idea, but we keep it for ourselves. It's our competitive advantage. It's part of Mm. our intellectual property. You have something that works really well in education and the natural persuasion is to share it. And often Mm. your PLN is where people see, but you also share the failures and actually that's often more important, the things that didn't work and why they didn't work. So I think, given the natural persuasion of educators, a PLN is much more effective than probably in the commercial space of just being a place to not feel alone, not to recognize that you're the only one experiencing challenges or difficulties, but seeing it across.
3: Mm.
2: And that can feed into the negative. So the positive is you've got this great wealth of people who will tell you, give you feedback, share resources, advice, ideas, and be a support when times are tough. Um, Mm. The negative sometimes is there are always some that on social media perhaps don't have the same collegiate view and will not always respond in the most constructive way Mm. Um, and so it's easy either if you've got a very small pln to all share it's that echo chamber kind of mindset that we're all Mm. having a tough time we share it therefore we perceive that's the norm for everybody in the world Mm. Um, but also that you know we spend I talked earlier about digital citizenship for our learners Mm. and we talk about how we do our, it's often referred to, um, I kind of often listen to other people, but was was listening to one that was shared about digital disinhibition. Mm. In other words, the way that we communicate when we're typing in social media is quite different to the way we might have a conversation. Mm. And I think as adults, we need to be mindful of that. I've seen some people who are teachers according to their Twitter feed, but some of the way that they've replied to others having challenging times or making a decision about how they've undertaken something in the classroom, it's not supportive. It's really quite critical. And I just wonder whether people think about the impact that can have on people when they read that and then step away from their feed. Um, So it's not unique to education. It's the same social media in general brings positives and negatives. And and that's the the same challenge. I mean, I'm now looking ahead and thinking about the opportunities that the metaverse might provide, but it comes Mm. with an equal list of minuses in terms of who's going to police it who's going to keep people safe and also will it mitigate some of the digital equity by allowing young people to access resources and experiences they could never physically do or will it amplify it because only those that have access to the right technology will be able to benefit from it Hmm. um let alone the 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 potential risk of bullying and inappropriate conduct And, and we can go on and on and on but i think the first thing is, if you think of social media, if you think about curating your PLN, if you share as much as you take, if mm. you're receptive and supportive to people, you don't always have to agree, but you can still be supportive. Um, I think in this day and age, in, in the world of just briefly mentioning Alexa or Siri and, and finding mm. the information you want, a PLN is a much more trusted source of feedback. Yeah. And the last bit I'd chuck on that is, the most common phrase we've heard over the last couple of years when it comes to technology and edtech is evidence informed yeah. and evidence can come from all different sources but the most important bit of evidence you can get is asking others who've already used it how they got on yeah just that point and so having a good pln is a, is a fantastic starter for 10. Mm.
1: yeah i think um i think i'd agree you have this kind of moment don't you where you you know you look at it and you write that you know a few points there because we've 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 got into loads here now but a few points there to be like you know one we don't know what the metaverse will hold and how it will go forward how this virtual um world will interact i don't think any of us thought you know back in you know in the 80s in my childhood when i was on you know myspace that now it'd be like TikTok, but i think that we're going to have to, you know, there's always pros and cons, you're right, you know, no matter what technology it is, there's always a benefit, there's always, you know, there's always an issue going forward for it. But I think one of the things that I've noticed most, I think is, um, is, is, you know, over recently, you know, we're, we're, we forget, I think, sometimes that it is, you know, it's, it's my old saying, it's, you know, it's a billboard in the middle of your town, you know, that, that The internet is like that and that actually you know you can disagree politely sometimes i think i wonder whether people remember that they can do that you know you can just disagree nice and politely and that's fine and you still eat all that you can still be friends and still disagree um you know sometimes i think it can be quite hard to see that but then some other times you look at you know some of the the situations that you see like on twitter both of us are very active on the that actually the support that you can get on there far outweighs the 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 tiny amount of fractiousness that you can see i think if you can see you know some of my friends and 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 some of my best support have been over the years over twitter and uh, you know and i've been on there a very long time now um and i have seen the conversation change to some extent but I, i do i do wonder whether you know that's whether we've just kind of forgotten that you can politely disagree you know it's fine um and, and that's okay and and people will see you do that and think oh okay that's fine you know that they, they can I, take that yeah, you know
2: I, I would ask a question on that which is you know for those that say you know twitter social media it's not for me and, and, and are an educator i think we just gonna be mindful that the world is digital now and that's the the future in all different mm. shapes and forms and we can't predict that far ahead But if we know our children and our families are using it, and they will be using it for the next 20 years in some shape or form, I I don't feel that I'm just never going to go there. I'm not going to take a look. I'm not going to get involved is the best way to understand and provide support and guidance to our children. Mm. Um, The important thing is, always say, curate those people you follow. Block those Mm. people that don't add value. And as you say, if you've got a great supportive network around you, the level of support and it's not always about your professional life it's often support in a personal context yeah that's what it's about is people that know you understand you and get involved you know and
3: mm.
2: i probably tweet as much about my pooches as i do about edtech innovation but sometimes it's just about saying you know, it's monday we're all in it together let's have a good week chins up smile on
1: you know yeah. you're not being forgotten um but those yeah which may be where we kind of want to you know we've got a, a bit of time left Alan and normally towards the end of my shows before we watch caroline desperately see if we, she can actually play the music for the close. um uh, normally we have a talk about just general chit chat on our sundays okay so tell me how is your pooch ferdy How's he doing? We've both got dogs. We're both big dog people, me and you, aren't we? You know, I've got old Doc, who is probably asleep currently on my couch and having nothing to do with me until Bacon is cooking. <laughs> That's probably exactly where he is right now. Um, well,
2: you know, we've we've been through a turbulent time in our household because we did have three dogs, and my oldest dog, Waffle, sadly passed away a few weeks ago.
1: Oh, I'm very um, sorry.
2: She was a Labradoodle. She made it to fifteen, which was well oh, above. Well. Expectations. That's
1: very good.
2: Um, and it was a very very sad decision, and I was at the vets with her when she finally said goodbye and
1: mm-hmm.
2: yeah that that hit me harder than probably i expected it would but i am very um, very much a softy when it comes to my pooches have you had um, dogs
1: through your entire adulthood your entire, i had
2: dogs when you were no a kid, i had, had dogs not... as a child i had mm. one dog that um i, I was quite young because um, apparently she went to live with somebody else but she didn't but that's how my parents explained her passing to me
1: yeah
2: um and when we got married, and Mrs. K and I have been, t- been married for 31 years. So we're just getting used to each other. And Mrs. K is not a fan particularly of dogs. Yeah.
3: Uh,
2: so we were, we were halfway through our journey before we agreed to get a dog. So Waffle was our first dog as a, as a family. Mm. Um, and then we got Basil, another, another Labradoodle to keep her company. And then mm. little Fergie arrived um, three years ago. Mm. Uh, and being little and being very much a bouncy cockapoo.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, he's very much been that well-being channel for me. He comes to the office with me, he often yeah. comes in on school visits with me, um, and I get lots of lots of pleasure from him, but actually he spreads a lot of love around the office and he knows where the treats are and he spends quite a lot of his time just going and saying hi. And other staff bring their dogs into the office now. Mm. Um, not everybody agrees with my policy, but. Um, I think sometimes I've learned over the years. You know, if you'd ask me 15 years ago, I was much more regimented in the way that we operate a business and conduct yeah. ourselves. Uh, and I've chilled with old age and recognise that actually life's too short. You've got to enjoy what you're doing and think about well-being first, and, and the business will follow naturally on the back of that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think it. I think it. It probably does. I mean, I had a. To... I mean, we've been married uh, a little over 12 years now and together a little over 15, me and my husband. And we got my dog, our dog, Odd Sog, five, six years ago. He was my first dog in adulthood and you uh, knew it, you knew it was going to get I, I had dogs throughout my childhood i've had dogs the whole way through my family do um run the one of the and help out all the time at one of the cypriot dog rescues because they're over in cyprus we've been rescuing dogs for years now um and i thought i'll get a dog and my dad said to so us "Don't get a rescue for an adult dog first get a just to get a get, just get a breed dog and then get your feet with it and then get a rescue afterwards and i was like okay then fine dad so I went out and kind of like, Mark's a cat person. <laughs> it's like nothing to do with the dog. He was like, what? But we just sent our daughter over to to stay with her dads and it had been a really rough, rough, rough year. And it was like, you know what? I could use with, you know, a dog in my life again. Because uh, I think it brings just the kind of stability that you can't get. I know it sounds daft, but the stability I'm a dog can it. give you yeah. is quite unreal. So yeah, I went out and got odd sock, and um, oh, that first year of puppying, oh Christ! Do you know? Do you know if you do it from puppy and you're like, oh my God, is this never going to end? It's needle teeth nonstop, and like, when are the other going to get it? And I took a bit of time off because I'd just been made redundant when I got odd sock um, from my first school, and then was transferring into my second, so I had a bit of time, and I was like, right, I'll take the months off, and I'll just like commit to training a dog and oh he's just absolutely lovely. But he's he's just he's proper quirky. Even in dogs I've had, like this one's a right quirky dog. You know It's,
2: like, it's nice that you know, it's character, isn't it? Yeah.
1: You know, yeah. it's like this one's a yeah, I mean we've had um Growing up, I've had Westies, we've had a Rottweiler, we've had a boxer, we've had quite a few dogs. And and quite a, yeah, yeah, big dogs to little dogs. We used to have, when I was a kid, like proper big dogs. Like I grew up with Brutus, like a full blown boxer and um you know and and they were they were very big dogs but when my brother was little he realized he had an allergy to very short-haired big dogs, so we had to get a very small west island terrier called charlie and he was adorable he was lovely he was our my brother's childhood dog he lived to about 50 um and and i always liked the the little kind of like Teriotypes. I think that probably represents me. A teriotype, it? <laughs> it's like a, a dog that's persistent and that just carries on no matter yeah. what. He's like yeah. So um, yeah, he's a uh, ours is um, if you've not seen odd socky's like a.
2: Oh, he's, he's a cutie. He's
1: a, yeah, he's a cutie. He's a he's a, a Russell Parson's cross with a Yorkie. So he
2: knows uh, how to work the camera, doesn't he?
1: Yeah, he does. He's got his Diana <laughs> her eyes on him. He has really, but yeah. He's um, well, he's Mike... full of character, really, and I, I do wonder about with dogs whether they do something for you for you know, especially for mental health and well-being. When you oh, sleeping.
2: I think it's I think it's huge, Caroline. I mean, I mean confession from dog ownership. But while we're having our therapy session, yeah, yeah. With, with our first two big dogs, our Labradoodles, you know, they sleep mm. in the kitchen, have their beds there, obviously around the house. Um, when little Ferdinand came, we um, I said to to Mrs K, oh, I think we'll let him sleep upstairs in the crate because he'll be close to us. And then she compromised and I said, I think we'll let him sleep on a bed, on a little bed next to our bed. He'll be fine there, you know, three weeks later. And ever since, you know, I wake up to uh, this staring face directly over me who sleeps on the bed and gets quite annoyed if he gets kicked or moves off during the night. Um, And he is very much fundamentally. you know yeah. everything I do, he's he's there or close by, and um, yeah, don't underestimate it. You know, I think we all have to recognise that we're not invul- invulnerable to pressures and stresses of life, and and sometimes just that, you know, non-judgmental, ever loyal face who's there wants to yeah. come for a quick hug makes a huge difference.
1: Yeah, I think it it is with any pet, isn't it? And I think um you're not the only one with that. Like I I I I love this, like because I had this moment where it's like growing up and like you know a family full of dog rescuers and trainers, it's like you know you know you you've got to you know be the pack leader, Caroline, and Mm -hmm. set the boundaries and make sure you do the training. And I turned up to my mum and dad's not long after getting my dog, and they have three. They have two rescues, one of which is a three-legged dog Bella. And one of which is um, quite severely um, mistreated dogs. And Elsie is just really, uh, um, Lily is just very, very spoiled. A spoiled West Island White Terrier. And um, I turned up and my dad was always like, you know, set the boundaries, get it right. And I turned up to their house and it was like, oh, the dogs are all in the main bed now and i was like hold on a second dad you've been telling me for like forever to make sure i've got it right and he was like that was when i was younger caroline i'm older now and it just doesn't matter anymore <laughs> and I was like really and i came back and i was like you know what i'll put a bed by my by our bed and it was Mark, really like we put a bed by our bed and Oddsock can stay there now now odd Sock, like wakes you up in the morning oh more so gets grumpy when i wake him up he's such a lazy dog <laughs> <laughs> he's like i'll get up and i'll be like right i'm ready and we going out odd sock no no we're not going out no no you haven't gave me bacon you haven't given me breakfast i'm not ready to start moving or functioning yet mum and that's it that's it such to the extent that when my daughter was away she's come back and she was like oh yeah odd socks my sibling my other person <laughs> like, he was like holding my place in the house whilst i was away with my dad was the doc and I think they can be really, really important, can't they, for well-being if you've got pets? Um, so yeah, yeah tell us about your pets today, if you've got any. I mean, um a cat, you know, really school is just so good. She does a little pets corner on Rise magazine. She does, she does yeah. like once a week, she does the kind of furry shout-out, and you get all these pictures of like loads of everybody's dogs. And, you know, dogs is something we can all definitely agree on. You know, if you've ever got, in that moment, send a picture of a, you know, a dog or your pet or your cat or a rabbit or, whatever it is you've got. Did you ever
2: have any of the pets when you were growing up? Yeah, we did. I mean, my daughter, I mean, she's 27 now and grown up and lives, lives in her own home. Uh, she had a, a cat when she was very young, Muffin, who lived with us and it's not been our best year. Sadly, Muffin, the cat passed away a week ago. Oh. Uh, she was in her mid 20s. Again, another great innings. Um, we've also got two tortoises, Callaway and Flash. Oh. Um, I, I had flash for a number of years and bought a tortoise for my mum because we had a tortoise when we were children uh, and my mum decided the tortoise was too much upkeep and maintenance for her i'm not quite sure a hard
1: tortoise.
2: <laughs> so so back back he came and we have the two of them who spend four or months of the year in our wine cooler in a box in hibernation because it's the safest place to keep the temperatures at the right level for them
1: That's and quite the rest funny of the that. year <laughs>
2: The rest of the year, they are roaming free in the garden. We have all sorts of measures in place to prevent them breaking out. And Hmm. a few years ago, one was spotted heading down the street from neighbors. But on the whole, they stay where they are. Hmm. And funnily enough, they're the boss. And when Ferdy's out there, they will chase him off their patch
1: yeah we used to have um i had i had rats when i was growing up surprisingly oh, wow. yeah yeah pet rats pet rats is a big one my little girl had pet rats when she was little as well because they only live about four or five years but they're a, they're a wonderful little pet and they can be a, they're like a little dog and i had a little pet rat called buddy that had rescued from a train station um, he was a train station rescue and oh he was just the best best rat he was just i mean we'd had rats all the way through along with dogs which seems like it shouldn't work but actually does if you're really little mm. and um, yeah he was um he was a, a rescue rat called buddy because i had gone into actually actually adopt two rabbits um but i'd seen this rat while i was in there so we ended up a period when aurora was little where we had two bunnies two bunnies and a, and a rat And um, oh, the lovely little creatures they are. But my my sister's the best one. She obviously, she does loads for the animal trust and um, loads of rescuing in general. And recently she's just adopted a new rabbit and rescued a new rabbit because she does lots of rescues, my sister. And um, rehoming as well. So she does fostering. And um, yeah, it's really, really lovely, but she's got this rabbit now that keeps like, it's got it in for her dog. (laughs) <laughs> like, so she rang me and she was like, "I don't know what's going on with these two 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 cats. What you've had rabbits?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I had rabbits for a while." And she was like, "What? What's up?" She was like, "Well, I've got this rabbit that I rescued from a terrible situation that I'm fostering for the time being, but my dog Alf, which he's had forever, um, just keeps staring at him." And I was like, oh, "Alf is a bit old for this, you know. It's predator and prey <laughs> aims, you know. You might want to like keep them a bit separate." But she's realised now that the uh, she I was like mainly you want to keep him separate for Alf's you know the dog's benefit because well Alf's yeah. an old man and she was like really I was like yeah and this is a young rabbit and she was like how dangerous can a rabbit be and I was like oh you have not dealt with rabbits have you? I was like, you know what I mean quite. So she rang me a few days ago and she was like, oh my God, this rabbit has booted me now that much. And I was like, yeah, you need to move him to a different spot. So she's just kind of getting settled in for it. But yeah, if you've got pets or um, animals this weekend, so are you going to be doing what I'm doing? I'm going to be walking odd sock at some point today. He needs a big walk. Do you know when you're like, oh, I should really take the dog for a big, big walk and I haven't had a chance to. And he's only had yes. big little kind of walks. I'm at that point. I prefer walking
2: the tortoises, to be honest. It's a little bit less impact for me. But yeah, Fergie gets out and about at least once, not twice a day for different bits. Yeah. um, You should hook up with Linda Parsons, good old Digi-Lynn, who um, I know you're familiar with. She's got two pet rabbits that... um, live in her home and um, are um, super tame and get involved in anything whenever she's online. There's always a rabbit in the background doing something fun.
1: I really loved her. I had Harry and Charlotte with my two rabbits and they lived to about 10. And um, they were just lovely, beautiful rabbits. But I used to have little leads. He used to take them out and everything. They were like, <laughs> do... <laughs> but I used to do it with me rat. And that used to disturb people, be you know, being on the spectrum. Like, I'd put me rats. We had rats when I was growing up as well. So even when I was younger. And I'd put my rat in my sleeve of my my cardigan or my jumper. Because that's what generally where rats like to hang out if you give them freeway. And and you'd do this thing where you'd be talking to somebody. And then a pet rat would just sneak their head out of the sleeve of your coat. And somebody would be like, oh, my God, it's not a rat. And you'd be like, yeah, yeah, it's it's a pet rat. And they'd be like, really? You're like, are you will he not run away no no he knows where i am he's not gonna run anywhere <laughs> he'd be like no way
2: have now made it to kaz and al's pets are us session yes he?
1: if you have <laughs> we're taking these last minutes to just enjoy talking about pets um and uh, yeah yeah i i think um people used to look at me like i was absolutely crazed with that one but he was a great you know you you'd have it uh, but there is a misconception especially with um things like rats that they're not great pets and they're wonderful pets they're like but a very mini dog
2: they are just to add to the mix of variety of menagerie uh, my brother for many years had a cockatiel called paxo so oh, obviously yeah. uh, was and, and i have to say my, my memory of that is that 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 bird hanging off a glove on a finger biting to the bone not a friendly not a friendly Ooh. pet now, i think that was probably it, more stick about for, training
1: and... yeah to stick up for cockatoos i had one when I was about Seven or eight called Magic, who was a much better cockatoo. Um, Yeah, he he was quite nice, but he trashed curtain poles. We probably
2: failed by calling him Paxo. Yeah, he probably, probably knew that he wasn't, in, wasn't loved.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What did you call him, Paxo? Yeah. So, I mean, if, you, if you're joining us, we're just about to round up. So, I'm going to try and attempt to play the close and see if we can we can get off. If I can't, I'm going to come back. So, let's see this. This is like an experimental game this is, isn't it today? Let's see if we can get a close on it. No, nope, I don't think it is. I think we're out of music today, Al. So, we're going to have to round up together. Are you ready? I'm going to like round or okay. ask everybody so text us messages out and and let us know um what you think if you've got any pets that you want to show us today give us a, a hashtag at tt radio or you can at me at k1 um you can obviously get al at al kingsley and if you've got any kind of feedback that you want to give or you want to go and check out some of our tweets on al's new book um, uh, go and check them as they come up. And with any luck, we'll catch you soon. So, shall we say goodbye, Al, if you can't get this, this? Thank you so much. Thank Lovely you very much and Thank see you soon. Folks.
0: Bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.